Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer, outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Bruce Thielman in his sermon dealing with discouragement said this, the company of the discouraged is a very noble company. Not too long ago, the Hayden Planetarium in New York City issued an invitation to all those who were interested in applying to be a part of the crew on the first journey to another planet. 18,000 people applied. They gave the applications to a panel of psychologists who examined them thoroughly and came to the conclusion that in the vast majority of incidents, those who applied did so because they were discouraged with their lives here and hoped they could find a new life somewhere else. Discouragement seems to be so prevalent, way more than joy is, and when problems mount up, it's so easy to get lost in the day-to-day. -day. And the truth is that problems do mount up. Problems at work, problems with money, problems with kids, problems with our spouse, problems with our vehicles, problems with our homes, uh, 
problems everywhere. They seem to mount up. And I think that the Apostle Paul is talking about the issues he has, the affliction he has. He tells us both in verse 1 and in verse 16, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. So the normal word for heart in Greek is cardia. And that means the seat of the emotions and the will and the decision makings and the thoughts. Um, it also means the organ known as the heart, but that's not the word used here. The word used here is enkikeo, enkikeo, sorry, which actually means to be or become discouraged or disheartened, to lose spirit, to give up. And he says, don't give up. Don't give up. Paul is telling the Corinthians not to be discouraged. Paul had a hard life. He had a hard life. He was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and imprisoned and threatened and so many other things. It seemed like at the next corner he was being oppressed again and again and again. And as if that weren't enough, there were nothing but problems in the churches that he planted. So here in Corinth, the Corinthian church, there was immorality, there was, uh, there was faulty theology, there was all kinds of things that he was dealing with. So Paul knows what discouraging circumstances are, and yet we get these two beautiful verses, verses eight and nine, where he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. So <clears throat> what I want to do this morning is actually to interact with a couple of philosophies that were prevalent at the time of Paul uh, in, and in the whole Roman Empire during the time of Paul. They actually came about some 300 years before, and by the time Paul came on the scene, they were entrenched. And I don't think they're that different from what we have today. There's nothing new under the sun. They keep happening. They keep happening. The two that I want to talk about are Stoicism and Epicureanism. Good, nice words that you can impress your friends with at a party. We know that Paul direct, dealt directly with these two in Athens. We know that uh, they came and, they, and he was, they were questioning him about what he was preaching. And of course, Athens is only about 65 miles from Corinth. But these philosophies were widespread throughout the Roman Empire. So what I want to do is, talking about affliction... I want to look at both of those philosophies, and then I want to look at Christianity and what Paul is telling us here uh, that refutes both of those philosophies. So, so these are the things I'm going to do. So first, we're going to talk about Stoicism. Stoicism was a philosophy with a unified theory of the cosmos involving physics and logic and ethics. It was a very cerebral, logical uh, type of philosophy. But instead of going into all the particulars, let's talk about what it says about hardship and struggle. Um, in a nutshell, stoicism would be the philosophy of what my wife would call, suck it up, buttercup. Just remember that. 
the philosophy of the Stoics, suck it up, buttercup. It was a philosophy of the stiff upper lip, of grit, of courage, of sticking it out. You just deal with it. The late Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous English pastor and preacher, describes the Stoic this way. The Stoic had meditated seriously about life and its problems. And he had come to the conclusion that if you want to go through life successfully, if you want to end standing on your feet, if you want to get through undefeated, there's only one way to do it. You must brace your shoulders. You must have a firm upper lip. You must clench your teeth. You must take yourself in hand. You must exercise discipline and have an iron will. You must refuse to be defeated. That's the way to deal with hardship in your life. You get it by gritting your teeth and you just get through it. You move through it. You don't let it get you down and you don't let them see you sweat. So the World War II generation was full of stoicism. This is what the prevailing sort of idea was. Hitler came on the scene. Everybody was volunteering to go. You just do it. I don't know if you've seen the series, The Band of Brothers, but that described stoicism. It was horrible. And they, they were from D-Day. They went all the way up to Hitler's lair by the end of the war. And they fought and they lost a lot of people, but you just do it. You just grit your teeth and bear it. We might call Nancy Reagan's advice to drug addicts uh, a stoic motto. Just say no. Just say no. Um, so what does it have to do with our passage? Well, this has led many modern-day progressive biblical scholars to conclude that in this passage, Paul is a Stoic. And that his advice, and, and that this is the advice that he's giving in the verses I just read. When you're afflicted, don't let yourself be crushed. When you're perplexed, use your brain and you will figure a way out. When you are persecuted, put a stiff upper lip and endure it because it will get better. And when you are struck down, suck it up, buttercup. You will be okay in the end, just hang in there. But of course, that's not Christianity at all. That's not the Christianity that Paul was preaching at all. Christianity isn't people just bearing with things. It's actually people triumphing in the face of difficulty. It is people rejoicing with full-orbed joy. And as Romans 8 says, we are more than conquerors. Paul is hardly being a stoic here. It's quite the opposite. Paul was actually a person that lived in the struggle. In the next uh, two chapters ahead in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5, he says this, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And fear within. He was an unimpressive, pers uh, unimpressive person in person, and he didn't speak well. Paul was the opposite of a Stoic. And yet what we have in these verses is Paul, not just enduring difficulty, but triumphing, not crushed, not in despair. He knows he's not forsaken. He is not destroyed. That's actually triumph. Are you triumphing in your hardship? 
That's my question for you this morning. The second philosophy is Epicureanism. This was around, uh, around at the same time, obviously. It came to be about the same time, uh, about 300 years before Paul. And at its root was that pleasure was life's good, greatest good and goal. Pleasure was life's greatest good and goal. So basic Epicurean philosophy proposed that the purpose of life was to experience tranquility through maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. So Epicureans believed that tranquility was achieved through learning about, about uh, and then practicing that which constitutes a virtuous life. Well, what was a virtuous life for the Epicurean? Well, it was having close friends, uh, avoiding negative people, having no fear of the distant God's judgment or the afterlife. Basically, God is not existent. It's about achieving this Greek word, ataraxia, which means tranquility. That was the biggest purpose of the Epicurean. And to do it through pleasure, tranquility, through the good life of pleasure. I don't know that it's that different from what we have in our society today. Especially, essentially, people do not want to be under the gaze of any divine standard. Uh, the motto is, eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you want. And what does this mean for hardship? Well, you avoid hardship like the plague. Anyone that causes you angst, you get away from them. You pour yourself into things that make you feel good. And so, uh, in so many ways, the sexual revolution that started in the 60s is Epicurean in its nature. Of course, they were throwing off the shackles of the World War II generation of the rules and the stiff upper lip and you just deal with it. They were throwing off all of those shackles, but in a real way, their answer to hardship was overwhelm yourself with pleasure. Be free from restraint. Be free from any rules that some God might impose on you. So in order to achieve a life of tranquility, you have to work hard, make enough money, achieve enough status and power, and not get bogged down in religion or a pursuit of God. Live life on your own terms. If you're successful, then you can have everything you need to be able to do whatever you want. Be free of divine judgment. Do whatever you want. That's the Epicurean philosophy. But the problem is that it's not working. People give themselves to the pursuit of pleasure and money, and it has been quite hard on relationships. From a, an article in the free press, there's a subheadline that says this. Half of American babies are born to unmarried mothers. Clearly, there's relational breakdown. Half of uh, <clears throat> American babies are born to unmarried mothers. This is the result of making tranquility, the, which is the pursuit of pleasure, your God. 
In his book, Biblical Critical Theory, Christopher Watkins says this, to seek to be free from divine judgment, to swallow the sedative of Epicurean ataraxia is to find myself alone and unaccountable and to know that everyone else is in the same position. And the Surgeon General has just come out and said that one, the number one problem is loneliness in our country. It's to find yourself alone. It's a rudderless position and it simply doesn't work for dealing with affliction or hardship. It might numb the pain temporarily, but the pain will always, always be there. So there's the two philosophies. In many ways, we might say that our political divide in our country represents a little bit of both. But Christianity is something totally different. It's something totally different. So let's look at that in this, in this passage. And again, I'm going to hit smatterings of the passage. Paul gives us a completely different way. And I want us to see three things about Christianity. Three things about Christianity. The first one is this. We are not alone. We are not alone alone. Both of the philosophies that I've outlined, where you're the center of your own universe, you do what you think, and as Christopher Watkins said, those who follow these ways are ultimately alone, and the cracks are beginning to show, but Christianity is very, very different. Look at verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are not islands unto ourselves. We are weak, sinful, broken people. That's the, that's the jars of clay. That's the imagery. Jars of clay were just very average. They were very fragile. They broke all the time. They stored things in them. Um, they were not, they were of ordinary use. And that's what he equates us to. We are that ordinary use. But inside the jar... There's a treasure. And what is the treasure? It's God himself who lives in his people and gives them surpassing power to overcome hardship and struggles. It is, it is his battle, not ours. If you're here this morning and you feel alone and have never met Jesus, You've never understood that for those who follow Jesus, there is a treasure in your heart. If you've never understood that, our passage speaks to you as well. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Man, that's a confusing verse, isn't it? But it's this idea. When you come to Christ, you believe and you declare. This is actually a quote from Psalm 116. You believe and you declare. This is what Christians are. We believe that the treasure is there and we declare it. 
It's probably a little clear in, in, in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I would encourage you to believe that Jesus is Lord that we have all been going our own way, but now we come to Jesus, the one who gave himself for our sins, the one who died, but then was raised to life, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess, every knee bows in belief, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the way to get treasure. And for those who have treasure, we are not alone. As opposed to all of those other philosophies, we are not alone. Second thing, suffering is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. Look at verse 10 and 11. I'm always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies and then I think 11's a little clear. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In his life, Jesus suffered. Of course, he suffered sickness and hardship and, and hunger and all the things that everyone does. He became flesh. He became human. He came as a baby, helpless, helpless baby in a manger. He came with no power, no power. He entrusted himself to his father. He came to be a light in the darkness when he grew up. And as such, he rubbed the powers that be the wrong way. And so he suffered through his life. He came to show people their sin and no one wants to see that. And so they crucified him for that. But of course, that was the point of his life. They didn't crucify him. He gave himself up. Um, he came to be a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Uh, but here's the thing, those who would follow him can count on suffering for his name's sake. He tells us that if the master suffers, then the disciples suffer. That was the big issue when Peter, when Jesus was telling that he would suffer and die and Peter went up to him and rebuked him for saying that. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Why was Peter rebuking him? Because he was planning on ruling and reigning. And if Jesus is going to suffer and die, then it's going to happen to him as well. And he wanted no part of it. But see, it's part and parcel of what being a Christian is. We don't think like the world around us. And it will produce friction sometimes. But here's more to the point of what I think those verses mean. I think what he's doing is calling us to come and die. Die to our own wants, die to our own needs, die to our own pride, die to our own desires, and to do what we want to do, die to our flesh. That's what Paul calls it, our flesh. It's not a, a body-spirit dualism. It's flesh, our old self, and life by the Spirit with treasure, the new self 
We daily are to die to the old self. That's hard. And that's suffering. Um, it's a death to our old way of thinking, which is ultimately self-centered. Or as St. Augustine said, in curvatus, uh, in, in curvatus in se, which means we're curved in on ourself. That's the way that we're born. We are consumed with our own wants and needs. But Jesus came to change the curve so that we would reject the self-centered approach to life and we would look to him for life. There is so much suffering in dying for yourself. It's very, very painful. It's much nicer when people just applaud us and laud us and all these things. But to die to our pride, at his, that's painful. That's painful. But we're not alone. <laughs> we have a treasure. We have a treasure. Third one and last one. The result is glory. The result is glory. So I want you to see what I believe is one of the most glorious passages in, in the entire Bible. Um, it's not just that we are not alone. It's way more than that. Look at verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So here it is. There is a future hope. The one who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us from the dead after we die. So I don't have time to unpack all of this, but let me say this. Stoicism asks you not to look at your afflictions. Just put a stiff upper lip and suck it up. Epicureanism tells you that when affliction comes, you numb the pain through pleasure. In both cases, it is asking you to bypass your afflictions. Don't pay any attention to them. Do whatever you have to do to get past them. But Christianity is so different. Far from ignoring suffering, we embrace suffering. We embrace it. Why? It says that this affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. We also might say, translated a different way, it is working in us. It's a present tense verb. It is working in us, an eternal weight of glory. A present tense verb means that it has ongoing action. It's happening now. The suffering now is beginning to translate into glory, into understanding the treasure in our hearts, into understanding all these things. And then it says, he calls our sufferings light and momentary affliction. Is he making light of people's sufferings? You can understand why they might think he's a stoic. Ah, the sufferings are nothing. Don't worry about the sufferings. 
But that's not what he's saying at all. He is comparing. He is comparing. It's actually a tremendous promise. The word glory already means heavy. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod, and it means, it means heavy. It's one of the definitions of it. It means God's glory is so heavy, so present, so big. As you see Isaiah in the throne room, and he falls on his face. It's the glory's too much. He can't handle it. It's so, so big. And yet here it's saying that this glory, this glory will be ours can be ours. He's making this comparison. The glory that is waiting for us is beyond anything we can imagine. It is so glorious, so all-consuming, so fulfilling, so joy-producing, so all-encompassing that in comparison, whatever affliction we might have is really life. Um, it is really, sorry, light, and it's momentary. It's light compared to the glory. And he's actually using the affliction to get us ready, to show us who he is. For the Christian's suffering is only a sign of the weight of glory that is being developed in us and that will ultimately, we will see and we will fall into. So for the Christian, suffering is the only sign of the glory that's coming. So what is the glory? What's the glory? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the treasure. The one who gave everything that we might enter into his glory. Brothers and sisters, we've had our sights set too low. We're just trying to get out of our sufferings any way we can. Grin and bear it. Or dedicate ourselves to pleasure to get around it. We've just wanted to avoid difficulty. But difficulty has glory in it for us because it will manifest Jesus. The more we suffer, the more we see Jesus when we run to him, when we pour into him and the glory begins to build and the treasure becomes more evident and we know that he's with us and he walks with us and he does things in suffering that he would never do otherwise. I was in a moment of deep anxiety and I woke up. I've shared this before. And the only thing on my mind was leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. That's Jesus made manifest in our afflictions and we wouldn't get him any other way. And the promise is that there'll be more of that and it'll be perfect and whole. We've set our sights too low. Somehow we've only wanted to get around or avoid the difficulty. But glory is in us and the future awaits us. This is why we do not lose heart. Because our outer self is dying, but our inner self is being renewed. When the emperor Valens threatened Eusebius with confiscation of all his goods, 
torture, banishment, or even death, the courageous Christian replied, he needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. One of the most prolific songwriters in the history of Christianity has been Fanny Crosby, who wrote over 9,000 spiritual songs. She was blinded in both eyes at the age of six because of a medical error. So she remembered what it was to see. However, she could still visualize the beauty of Christ's blessing um, with more clarity than most people that have sight. And so... Um, it's been noted that in many of her hymns, this visually impaired lady quite amazingly spoke about sight. Look at these examples. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Watching and waiting, looking above. Near the cross, I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. That's the gospel. Jesus is the gospel, and he changes everything. Let's pray.